All right, today we uh, have on the podcast a very special guest, Matt Winning. Um, Matt, why don't you go ahead and tell, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your history in powerlifting and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started lifting when I was 12 and a half. Um, I got into the gym uh, for a couple reasons. One, I wanted to get my legs stronger after I had uh, broke my legs when I was a kid. I, so I got hit by a car when I was six and I was in a wheelchair for a year and the uh, first year that you could play full pad football was seventh grade. So I was in sixth grade and I was like, well, maybe if I get my legs stronger, they won't hurt when I run and I'll be able to play. I was always kind of gifted upper body. I had pretty wide shoulders and, um, I was pretty even good at the bench press, even as a kid. And, uh, but my legs had always been, um, a, a weakness based off of that initial trauma that I had when I was a child. So kind of being a semi-smart kid, I ended up getting a, a membership to the Y and uh, start going over there and lifting. And a couple of the guys that were really good lifters in that area had been there at the same time and saw me, and they thought I was in high school. So they're like, wow, you're a really big kid for, like, being a sophomore. And I was like, no, I'm in sixth grade. And they're like, oh, shit, you're lifting with us. <laughs> so I started lifting with them at 12 and a half, 13. And they take me probably right before I turned 14. I was, like, 13. I was I a couple months from turning 14, they took me to a meet, and I bench pressed 250. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so I the bench press, I will say, is one of the lifts that I was very gifted in. But the legs, the deadlift and the squat, I had to work every bit for, which I would say out of all the lifts, probably equalized bench. So I'm pretty known for being a good squatter. Um, and that took years and years of perfection. But um, that's how it got started. I, you know, I, I think I started – because I wanted to play football, and then I started to like weights more. Um, and then by the time I was 16, 17, the bug was so strong, I was already doing uh, USAPL national competitions. And uh, right before I graduated high school, I benched uh, – I had the American record at four four 492. Wow. So I benched almost 495 in high school, and I was Holy pulling shit. like – Yeah, I was pulling a slight bit over six and squatting about six – well, I think two – Two months after I graduated high school, I squatted 661 in USAPL. Back then, the gear was jack shit. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's when it started. And then um, it was just a big breeding ground at Ball State um, for weightlifting. There was a kid there named Justin Cecil that was not a great lifter by any means of his own, but he was heavily read. Like he knew a lot of the books that Louie knew back in the late 90s. And uh, we were allowed to experiment with a lot of the Ball State athletes there. And if you were on the Ball State powerlifting team, one of the one of the um, things that you had to do was help out in the weight room with the weight with the with the athletes. Gotcha. So if you were on the Ball State powerlifting team, you had to help with the football team, you had to help with track, you had to help with all these teams, and we got to experiment with a lot of uh, you know resistance training, not only in powerlifting but it, uh, ap- you know applying it to sports. So uh, that kind of led me into seeing the books from Louie. Um, you know, that Louie always made famous, but in reality, my professors were the ones that had worked under the tutelage of Zatsiorsky from Russia. And I didn't know that until I was probably the end of my freshman year that Dr. Kramer was with Zatsiorsky at Penn State, and he was in charge of all of the Soviet Union literature that had come out and all of the sports that he was in charge of. So it was kind of funny that Louie was the one that initially showed me that particular um, set of manuals and books to read. Then my friend Justin Cecil kind of uh, reinforced that, and then Dr. Kramer, as I had more advanced classes in exercise science, kind of showed me 
straight from the horse's mouth all the books from Zatsiorsky, which was like it was like full circle. That's crazy. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't have really gotten a better background as far as knowledge and training and all that if I would have tried. And it was funny that it was all in my hometown. It was like perfect I don't think, timing. Yeah, I don't think that – and, you know, if you went to Ball State now, you would not get any of that because Kramer's at Ohio State now. They're not doing any resistance training. So it was just the perfect perfect storm, you know. That That's crazy. That's – yeah, like just fell into place. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how you got into powerlifting. How did like you have a pretty pretty crazy history in powerlifting, right? Like you're one of the one of the greats, right? Yeah. Um, how did you How did you get into Westside, and how did you like make your way in there and network with them? That was pretty interesting. So um, you know, back in that day, the only thing you had to connect powerlifting to the outside world was Powerlifting USA magazine, mm-hmm. and Louis wrote quite a few articles in that magazine, and that sparked a lot of people's interest but namely me and uh, i would always wait for the next plusa to come out and i'd read about louis using these special bars and bands and chains and all this crazy shit (laughs) that at a local ymca and even at a strength conditioning place i had never heard of or seen and that started to spark interest and i was probably 19 and uh you know the arnold classic was only a couple hours away and back then the arnold classic if you weren't into professional strongman professional bodybuilding or extreme powerlifting there was nothing there yeah like it was extreme back then in the 90s the arnold wasn't what it is today where you go there and they got fucking baton twirling and <laughs> you know all Ballet this stupid, shit. most stupidest shit you could possibly imagine um back then it was it was more hardcore and i had watched george halbert bench press 766 at 220 and all the West Side guys were standing there. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I was walking into the the convention hall, and Louie and all the West Side guys were walking out. And I didn't see him. My friend Brad Sheward saw him. And Brad was more of a bodybuilder, but he was heavily educated in lifting. And he goes, dude, that's fucking Louis Simmons. You ought to go talk to him because he's the one that can get you stronger. You know, he's like, you've maxed out what you're going to learn in Muncie. In this, wow. this this town in Indiana. So I just had the ball sack to just walk up and talk to him. You know, and Dave Tate standing there, Jim Winler standing there, George Halbert, all the greats, Kenny, wow. Kenny Patterson. I walk up and I'm like, hey, my name is Matt Winning. I'd like to come over and train with you. <laughs> and he's fuck. like, and he asked me, he goes, well, you're a pretty big kid. He's like, what, how much do you lift? And I'm like, well, I bench pressed 500 and I'm only 19. He goes, wow, that's pretty good. He goes, well, he gave me his number and he said, just call me when you're ready and we'll have you come over. So... That's when the gym was just in a little shithole strip mall. I mean, it was like 500 square feet. It literally was a little bit bigger than my office. Holy cow. And, yeah, it was super small, but just just super intense. And um, so I think I called him maybe three three or four weeks later, and I went over there. And the first thing that drew Louie to me was there, they had this really, really big black dude. His name was Tilt. I don't remember what his first name was, <laughs> but his last name was T-I-L-T. And we were doing, we were laying down doing tricep extensions off the floor with dumbbells, and I was doing seventies for sets of twelve. And this tilt guy that weighed like four hundred pounds couldn't do it for ten. And Louis saw me beat him, and he's like, he's like, got pissed off at tilt, but he it made him remember. It made him remember me. Yeah. And then I remember George Halbert coming up to me after we had done a bench press. I don't remember if it was that day, or maybe the next time I came, and George Halbert had come up to me and. He looked at my arms. He goes, dude, you got the pecs and the arm and the shoulders to bench press 600. He goes, but your fucking triceps are garbage. 
and I was having problems locking out whatever we were doing. So instead of being pissed off and being like, oh, fuck that guy, I'm not going to listen to him, from I went and asked Louie and Dave, I was like, what do I need to do to get my triceps stronger? George says my triceps are weak. <laughs> so whatever I did, I whatever he told me to do at that time, which I don't really remember, I did to the T. And I don't think I ran into George for another three or four, maybe six months. I would come in and do a more leg training with Chuck. And I really wanted to push my, yeah, I wanted to push my squat up higher. So, but the next time George saw me, he not only saw that my triceps were bigger, he watched me bench and knew that I was fixing that shit. And that's when, that's when George had no problem telling me anything I wanted to know because he knew that I wasn't going to try to be the big fish in the small pond. I was willing to listen, even though I was a 500 pound bencher as a teenager, I was willing to listen to guys that were older and stronger than me. And, uh, so George kind of took me under his wing on the bench days and, I would say he was my biggest influence to getting over the 600-pound raw benches and the 850 shirt benches. Wow, man. That's that's such a, a crazy, um, you know, those for those guys to take you under their wing and, uh, you know, teach you, like, that's yeah. so perfect. Like, you're, well, you, live, you live in Ohio, right? And, uh, yeah, yeah. West Side I lived at that time. At that time, I lived in Indiana. Okay. And I was, I was driving two hours and 30 minutes one way to train. Well, I mean, fuck, like. Yeah. Why not? But it was, it was worth it. But, you know, that's where I think the big misconception is. And I wish that that, I don't know if you've watched the West Side documentary. I haven't yet. I want but, to. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I think it misses is that, and you can see it if you're, if you've been in the trenches with it all, but the real magic at that place at that time was the lifters. Yeah. It wasn't Louie. You know, Chuck and George and Kenny Patterson and those guys were trying some outlandish things to get stronger. And Louie was really good at watching and observing and then writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think the misconception comes from that a lot of those special exercises and special ways to train were Louie's idea. And in reality, they weren't. They were George's and Chuck's from massive amounts of years of experimenting. And I was just ha- fortunate enough to be there at the middle and tail end of all that yeah. uh, advancement. And then I learned, you know, I, I try to tell people a lot of times when I was at Westside, I learned just as much of what not to do as what to do. And that's why I was able to get very strong raw, but I don't have any injuries. Exactly. If you look at most of the guys that's retired from Westside, they're all beat up. Yeah. They're all injured, surgeries and everything. And I, I stepped back and was, I don't know if it's smart enough or lucky enough, but I just stepped back and learned a lot about how to push to break world records, but also how to recover. Yeah. That's uh that's one thing. Like when people, like people, I'm from a pretty small town and people like there's not many powerlifters around here and they're like how many days a week do you train you must train seven days a week and I'm like no you got to train like especially when you're you know you're, you're drug free you've got to yep. recovery is is you know almost as important as the training itself right oh yeah and that's what people don't realize is like you know recovery still becomes the main key when you're not drug free yeah you know I try to tell people all the time I didn't take anything until I was 24, mm-hmm. and I had already squatted 826, bench press 572, and delta wow. 744. And the point was, is I felt like I wasn't recovering, right? So the first step to me taking anabolics was, my mom was a nurse practitioner. She took me to an endocrinologist specialist, which at this time, taking anabolic steroids was still cliche in the medical field. Mm-hmm. This is 2004, and my testosterone level was 300. Holy shit. So high is 800 natural. Yeah. So I was literally less than half of that. And I think a lot of that, the the endocrinologist looked at my, you know, my uh, medical reports and he said, 
I think the reason that your testosterone levels are so low is because of all of the surgeries you had when you were a kid. The anesthesia and the antibiotics they had to put you on fried your shit. And mm-hmm. he said, I don't, I don't understand how you got this strong. But it, it goes to show – my point to all that is it goes to show you that anabolic steroids are only a small portion of why someone gets better. If I was able to break all kinds of American records in the USAPL and be the top five in the country in the men's open as a junior – with a 300 testosterone level, yeah. then it doesn't it doesn't matter until you get to that kind of point where then you might need it. Absolutely, so many people, uh, especially who aren't you know in the sport, like so many like yeah, um, just like recreational guys, exactly, or people that just like don't know anything about the sport. Um, they're just yeah. like they think it's all drugs or you know, and it's it's yeah. just not the case. Anybody who who knows knows it's hard work, right? That's yeah, it's just a lot. It's just work ethic and training. I mean. I would say the drugs, it depends on where you're at. It depends on where you're at in your training. The longer you wait to take them, the more boost they'll give you. But in reality, in raw lifting, the drugs are only going to be capable of about 10%. Hmm. So if you bench 300, you get on a bunch of shit, you're going to bench 330. Okay. Now, if you bench 600, you're going to bench 660. Yeah. Right? It's a big difference. So my point is the stronger you get without them, the stronger you'll get with them. Uh, but I still think that they're only probably 10% of the equation. And at the end of the day, it still comes back down to tricking your body to being able to recover okay. because eventually you max out the drugs too. Yeah. So then what, what is left? So you find that people, um, that tend to take or not take drugs, it still comes back down to nutrition, sleep and recovery. Um, whether you're on drugs or not. So that, that's the hard part with all that situation. But I always, prided myself in getting very very far without any of that i mean obviously i wouldn't have been able to break all-time world records without taking anything but yeah at the end of the day i still accomplished a lot you know three collegiate national titles five american records pretty much every teenage record all that was drug free that's impressive man yeah that's really impressive um so yeah okay um that's uh that's some crazy history like one quote that reminds me of uh, just going back to all the guys at uh at Westside like you said it wasn't Louie it was it was the atmosphere right it was the guys and yep. uh like this quote i heard the other day it was uh like iron sharpens iron men sharpen men right yeah so those guys just kept each other so sharp and and just kept um well what i think people don't realize is that the competition in the gym was worse than any meet yeah um, you know, when you did a when you did a competition, you did a max effort day in the gym. You were there to whip everybody's ass. It wasn't like you were rooting each other on, but the strongest person was the one that was going to come out on top. And that's the type of atmosphere it takes to push those kind of numbers. And that's what I needed to, to be around at that time um, because I I got really strong lifting in a local Y that was playing the pop music of the day. You know, like freaking Matchbox Twenty and shit. I <laughs> So that kind of atmosphere really took me to a completely different level. Wow, that's uh, that's such great history, man. Like uh, that uh, that taught me a little, like a lot right there. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I think you know. There's no way that I think that my history, just in the way that the stars aligned, at least as of right now, could ever be duplicated. It's- I don't think. I think the, the amount of people that I was around to teach me to train, the professors that I had at certain times, the knowledge that I had, because you remember the internet was jack shit. Yeah. So the knowledge that I had at that time 
and the environment that I had at that time, all those do- all those dominoes fell at the exact right time for Perfect me to be timing. one of those one of those all time greats. Um, I would have not been able to do it by myself, but I put myself in the right position to be able to be respected enough to be able to play around with those guys. And that, like, do you think um, learning from those guys at such a young age set you up for networking with guys like now, like you network with guys like Mark Bell? Stan Efferding, Thor, like you, you work with all these guys. Do you think that kind of set up the building blocks to now work with work with these uh, these guys now? Yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that domino effect was Bell because Bell trained at Westside with me. Yeah. So me and Bell have been friends for upwards of about twenty years. So um, he remembers when I wasn't jack shit, and I remember when he wasn't jack shit. <laughs> and sometimes fr- friends of that nature, they just don't change. You know, like. Um, even though he's grown and his business is different and my business is different and our lives are different, we are still have that old-time friendship that is pretty great in it. And I think the reason I bring that up is because I don't think without Bell, first of all, I know I'd have never met Stan Efferding because a lot of people don't realize that Stan Efferding was trained by Bell for him to break all those records. Yeah. Um, and Stan Efferding does all of Thor's diet. Yeah. So it's kind of like the domino effect. And... Chris Bell, Mark's brother, was really good friends with Mike O'Hearn, and he's the one that introduced me to him like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those connections that I had came from Mark, um, and Mark's one of those guys that if he respects you and values your opinion and your loyalty, then he's pretty good at sharing his connections with you, and that's kind of helped me out a lot, especially on social media. Yeah, like... Mark, Mark's the guy that got me into powerlifting. Personally, I have his uh, his quote: "Strength is never weakest." Tattooed on my leg. So I'm nice. A, I'm a big, big Mark Bell fan. Um, I'm actually gonna September. I'm thinking about going down to Sacramento. It's about a 16 hour drive for me. Um, yeah. But going to going to meet him and train at Super Training because like it's worth it. Like when you're when you're trying to be the yeah. best and break records and all this stuff. Like you gotta learn from those guys. You gotta you know. It takes sacrifice, yep. like you know. Yeah, you have to let me know because I might, I might be out there in September as well. Yeah, you were saying that you're doing a bike ride, right? Well, I'm doing a bike ride in July. Okay. So it depends on how the crumb, the cookie crumbles. But I'm flying my bike into Seattle, and then I'm riding to Anchorage, Alaska, and then I'm going to ride all the way back home to Ohio. But I might come back down the coastline and come back in through California and stop at Bell's. Cool. But Bell and I have been trying to figure out a time where we're both home. And have two, three, four days where I can go out to super training. We can shoot a lot of training videos. Okay. Um, so that might fall in the September range. Well, you so, know, what, man, um, I live on the way up from. I live in between Anchorage and Seattle. Oh, okay. I live on a little island um, off Vancouver. Do you know where Vancouver is on in BC? Oh, yeah. Yep. I live. I live. It's a. It's like an hour and a half ferry ride. Um, so if you want to come over, man, I'd uh, love. Yeah. To, I'd love to have you and. I'd probably be doing that on the way back down in July. Sure, man. Let's do it. Yeah. I, uh, you ever had fresh salmon? No, I'm not a big fish guy, but I totally eat it if it's fresh, I suppose. All right, I yeah. like I like I like lobster and shrimp and uh um I like scallops and we got I'm not really big into, big into crab. I don't, yeah, I don't really eat a ton of fish per se, but I'll take you fishing if you want, man. Yeah, that'd be fucking awesome. That's <laughs> wicked, yeah. Salmon fishing on the west coast is the best in the world, man. That's what I've heard. Sweet. Well, uh, we can talk about that later, but let's set that up. That'd be fucking awesome. Yeah, cool, man. Um, anyway, get back on track here. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, 
um, how do you pronounce this word, gusha, the, the scraping, right? Oh, guasha. Guasha, okay. Where did you yep. learn that? What are the benefits? And uh, it, like, it's for scar tissue, right? Uh, it's for every it's for every kind of tissue. I would say it works well with scar tissue. Okay. Um, so I became friends with Charles Poliquin in 2015. Okay. Um, I was doing a seminar in Colorado Springs. And I knew Charles because I'd read all of his articles on T Nation and he was a big he was the fucking shit from nineteen ninety seven to two thousand five. His name on every performance thing was out there. He just he was a guru of that shit, right? So I knew who he was and I had read a lot of his articles. Well, I was doing a seminar and unbeknownst to me, he only lived twenty minutes away. Holy shit. So he, he messages me this email. He either finds my it's been a while, it's been four years. Either messaged me or he found my email and he asked if he could come and listen to my seminar. Hmm. And I said, well, fuck yeah. You know, this guy's <laughs> like one of the top dudes in the world. Of course you can come listen to my seminar, right? Well, he listens to it and he is very impressed with what I know as far as speed work, acceleration, force, how to train for maximum efforts, how to rotate exercises. And, uh, you know, he came to me after the seminar, and he's like, you know what? He goes, a lot of this stuff I already knew, but I completely forgot. And he goes, how would you like to do some seminars with me? And I said, well, fuck yeah, you know, let's do it. So in 2016 and 2017, we did seminars in Amsterdam, Prague, Toronto, and all this other shit, and made really good money. But he, in return asked me he said any seminars that i do you're more than welcome to come to for free since you open your doors to me so he did a seminar in toronto and it was called lower body kinetic chain and i was like oh that's pretty interesting you know kind of see how to work around injuries lower body somebody has a knee tweak somebody has a calf strain whatever right so i go up and drive to toronto and um i take his class and i'm just fucking blown away with what he knows and he pulls out these fucking tools made from buffalo bone, and he's calling this shit guasha. And I'm thinking, this is just like some kind of weird acupressure, like massage type shit, right? Yeah. Well, he brings in these pro athletes from Toronto, and he's working on them. They have all these mileages on them, you know, hamstring tears and this and that. And I literally watch their bodies change in 15 to 20 minutes really? of him knowing all these little pressure points and this guasha shit. And I'm like, I got to learn this stuff. So he teaches me, um, we did, I did the lower body with him in Toronto and the upper body with him in Prague. And, uh, it's, it's basically a pressure tool that causes both the central nervous system and the muscles to relax and fiber bonding. So what you have is you have muscle tissue and fascia and you have skin you have all these layers of tissue and with the proper pressure and hurts and also the proper tool, i.e., not grass and stainless mm -hmm. has to be an organic tool. This type of pressure actually causes the muscles to release and changes the motor patterns. Interesting. And also increases flexibility and power. So I got whatever quasi famous doing it to Thor because Thor would come off of these plane rides, you know, flying from Iceland's not very close. Yeah, And he's a giant <laughs> and he's a fucking giant. So he doesn't <laughs> fit in the seat. So he comes in, he's super stiff, super tight. Well, three years ago, Stan brings him into the gym and he's like, Hey, Thor's, you know, lower back's really tight from sitting on the plane. You got anything you can do with it? You know? So I'm like, Oh fuck. Yeah. I'll use this new guasha technique shit that I learned from, from, uh, from Charles. So I did it on him and he placed insanely well. 
Well, then he was sold on it. So then last year, I did it to him again, and he wins. And then this year, I do it to him again, he wins. and he wins everything. <laughs> and I'm not saying that it had everything to do with it. But Matt, my point it was is all that, you. Yeah, it was all me. <laughs> he, felt, he felt like he did when he, he didn't have to fly in a plane. Okay. His mobility and his shoulders got better for the overhead I stuff. watched that video. Yeah, everything got loose, you know, and he felt way better. And all I did was look for fibers. You can feel with that tool what the fibers are doing and how they're reacting. And if you break all those up and create more blood flow and more flexibility in those areas, the body functions better, period, end of story. There's no real science per se to it, but the Chinese have been using it for 2,500 years. Interesting. And so when I learned that, Charles taught it to me, he actually brought someone from China that was like a Guasha master, and he showed us all of these different. A lot of it has to do with trigger points and pressure. So... I, and I am by no means an ultra expert in it, but I know enough to be dangerous and actually help people. So um, a lot of it has to do with posture, muscles sticking to each other and unsticking them, bringing blood flow and mobility to the area, and then making sure, you know, if a muscle stuck to one another, it doesn't function correctly. Yeah. So a lot of people have that in their scapula. Um, a lot of people have that in their pecs, major and minor, or stuck. Um, so you get muscles that tend to bond to each other with either fascia or to themselves, and with the right amount of pressure and the right amount of tooling, you can actually get everything to release. And what really sold me on it is that I rode my Harley all the way to Toronto to, to take this class because it was really nice out. I get up there, and like a dipshit, my back is destroyed from riding that <laughs> Harley that far, yeah. which I'm getting ready to do all the way to Alaska, <laughs> which is dumber than fuck again. Well, so Charles works on my spine from the top of my skull down to my tailbone. Holy cow. Right? just works on it like you saw me working on Thor. My back, I rode my motorcycle home. My back felt better for four months. Wow. That's when I was like, holy shit. This stuff is some witch doctor crazy shit. (laughs) Because I have a tilted pelvis, which is a lot of times why I couldn't train the deadlift. I had to rotate in and out heavy deadlift training cycles because of that car accident. Mm -hmm. So if I sit in one place too long or I'm on my Harley too long, my tailbone and my L3, L4 start to get agitated. So when that dug out and actually felt better after another seven-hour motorcycle ride, when I got home, I could immediately train. I was fucking sold. Sold on it. So I don't practice it a ton. I, I save a lot of that for people like Thor. And if I got a client that has, say, a, an agitated shoulder or an agitated hip or something of that nature, I'll bust it out. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a tool you use all the time. I think it's for specialized events. It's for peaking. Um, and you know, a lot of people, they get into something that works a little bit. They use it too much. Yeah. They go to the well. Right. So what I, I usually only use guasha on myself now, if I'm getting ready for a meet, which is never cause I'm retired, but <laughs> I have, I make my interns practice it on me, Okay. Which, it, which makes me probably have it get done to me once or twice a week. Um, but it's amazing how much better the muscle structurally feels and how a lot of times when I was younger, um, what I thought was a stiff, sore muscle from overtraining was actually a muscle that was fascially bonded and it needed broke free. Huh. So what, what, that's what it is. What did you what do you use for the lubricant? Do you just use like eight five three five or what? We use we use coconut oil. Okay. Okay. So you just use basically organic coconut oil. Okay. I thought yeah, okay. And I found it really interesting when you were doing Thor's chest, you said the tattoos leave scar tissue. Yeah, I didn't know so, that. You know, when you when you leave, when you do it when you do a tattoo 
that gets embedded in your skin, but you're putting 5,000 needles in your skin. Yeah. So the skin is not going to repair like it was never injured. Yeah. It's going to have a layer of almost scarring that may not be, you know, feelable. It may not be pal, pal, you know, you might not be able to feel it, palpate it, but that is not normal skin anymore. Interesting. And if you notice where he had all this tightness, he had a lot of ink. He had it all on the chest, right? Yeah, which is super crazy. And also, ink, even if it's okay for you, it's still a toxin. Yeah. So Charles was very against belly button piercings and tattoos because he said it caused a lot of internal metabolic damage. Interesting. Now, how true that is is questionable, but I have seen a couple of girls that he used to train that Charles would say, well, you're ha- they're having trouble getting their abs to come in for a figure show or whatever. He'd have them pull their belly button ring out and their skin would tighten up on their abs within four weeks. Really? Yeah. Holy so the shit. metal toxicity that your body sustains, whatever it may be, whether it's at work or from piercings or tattoos, the metals and the ink to- toxicities cause your body to have metabolic and endocrine damage. Interesting, man. So I don't know if I'd ever got all the tattoos that I have if I'd have known that, but I was a, I have a fucking 28-year-old dipshit, you know what I, I mean? I have a tattoo booked for a full chest piece on uh, in December, so I might, might have to change that around. Yeah, and I think, you know, the problem is it becomes it becomes how extreme do you want to be. I mean, do I think a chest tattoo is never going to allot you to bench five or 600 pounds? I don't think so. But I think that eventually it could limit you. And if five pounds on your all-time ever bench is a factor then i'm not so sure personally now with the knowledge that i know i I don't know if i'd do it interesting man that's uh that's crazy i never thought about that i know i I didn't either until i met him you're a smart guy matt winning um that's uh that's kind of mind-blowing um so so you you know you said you started lifting when you were 12 years old uh when did you say your first powerlifting meet was again I did it right when, I, right before, I think two months before I turned 14, so that would have okay. been 1993. And how, how old are you now? Like 40? Yeah, I'll be 40 in five months. Okay. Um, so you've seen, you know, you've been in the game for a long, long time, right? 27 how, years. How, how have you seen powerlifting change over the year, years, sorry, and, uh, y- you know, you've, you've seen a lot, like, from going from West Side era to, to now, like, the Raw era, before it was, like, multiply then it went in, you know, USPPL was single ply, and now it's mostly raw lifting. Yeah. What? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think there were advantages to all eras. I'm, it's kind of a cop-out to say that, but I think in the 90s, you found that powerlifting was really on its way to learning a lot more. Um, you had guys like Dr. Hatfield. You had guys like Louie starting to write and experiment. You had a lot of guys that were seasoned lifters at the time that had been experimenting along a lot you know Kazmaier and uh, you know all these dudes and I think there was a bit of science that was really starting to get pretty hard, hardcore uh, but the, the thing of it was it didn't attract a lot of savvy business people and it didn't attract a lot of money it was kind of one of those sports that was a very extreme sport that working class people did and um, it was just kind of a subculture hardcore subculture almost like the arnold days of bodybuilding you know you were in it if you were kind of a freak really yeah um and then i think you saw this explosion and i think what the explosion the first explosion i think and like i said i think maybe somebody 10 years older than me like ed cohen might be able to answer this better than me but i think 
that the advent of using weight training in football and sports started to really change how powerlifting was perceived. You got to remember that the first weightlifting structured program ever used in Western sports was University of Nebraska in 1972. Hmm. So weight training in sports of itself is very new. Yeah. Right? So you got to remember that there was only probably 30 or 40% of the colleges were using weight training for sports up until 1985-86. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, you know, guys that are slightly older than me are going to be able to tell you this better, but my old boss at Ball State, Wade Russell, played for the Dolphins and the Bengals. In 1981, 82, and 83, he was the first strength coach hired by Ball State in 1984. Wow. So that's Mac D1. That's crazy. So in Division One, Ball State had its first strength coach in 1984. That means D2, D3, and other D1 schools probably didn't have a strength coach. Right? And now every so, school does. Yeah, but my point is, is that's why I think powerlifting slowly became accepted the mainstream was because it was used in some way, shape, or form in, in college sports. So you had hundreds, if not thousands, of athletes coming out of college sports, and they had been used to training weights. Hmm. So then they taught their kids to lift weights. Makes sense. Right? Because now they realized it wasn't dangerous, and it wasn't just a meathead thing. Yeah. It was an athlete thing. And um, that's why I think the 90s were kind of the hotbed of everything starting to grow. Then the 2000s, that kept growing. And I think what happened was 05, 06, you had the advent of CrossFit starting to take over a little bit. And then it made everything dumber than a box of fucking rocks <laughs> for the next 10 years, right? And then people realized, oh, I didn't wrestle for 15 years. I can't do CrossFit at a high level because those guys are actually pretty decent athletes. But they sold it that everybody could do it. Yeah. And I think the trickle-down effect was, well, I'm just going to do powerlifting because I don't have to learn how to do clean and jerks and snatches because I'm already 22 and I don't give a fuck what anybody tells you. If you don't know how to do snatches and cleans with perfect technique by the time you're 15, you're in deep shit Yeah. because the Russians teach them all with dowel rods up until they're 12, 13. Motor patterns, and then right? Their technique's perfect and then all they got to do is load them. Yeah. But if you think at 19, 20 years old that you've never touched a weight before, you're going to be an Olympic lifter. Good luck with that. Yeah. So... That's what I think turned away from CrossFit was the level of injuries and problems. So people saw powerlifting as kind of still intensive, but a little bit more uh, user-friendly, per se. Makes sense. So that's why I think powerlifting started to get a little bit more popular. I do like, kind of like and agree with Greg Panora, my old training partner, that it was kind of neat when it was more underground. Yeah. But I think it needs to go this way for it to succeed. Um, it's just... I think the problem is now is that I think everything went raw because people could associate with it better at a normal gym. But now you got guys like Ray Williams and my old training partner, Vlad, that are starting to do 1,100-pound squats raw. raw, and you're like, oh, fuck. Now, I think what's <laughs> actually, I think these elevated numbers, although cool for me and you to see, is starting to take it back out of the public hands again. Yeah. It's starting to make it such an extreme sport that people are like, What's the world record in my weight class? Oh fuck that! I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you I know, mean, and then even even Bryce, the like my buddy who's sitting here, he said to me a bunch of times, and I always fucking bug him for this, but he's like, "Oh, I don't want to lift because the rec like I don't want to do a powerlifting meet right now because I want my lifts to be higher." You know, it's like you yeah. just got to get into the game, right? Well, I think the nice thing is, and tell your friend Bryce. Tell the nice him that thing is, <laughs> When I was a kid, right, 
you you didn't get to see the records every week. You got to see the records once a year when PLUSA printed them. So the point was, is it was a lot easier just to train for your own self goals back then. Yeah. But what, what you find is that you get 10, 15 pounds better and you're only focusing on yourself, that your lifts start over-challenging everyone else's. But the problem is, is everybody's focus is what everybody else is doing versus what they're doing. So the best thing I found about powerlifting at a young age was don't worry about what everyone else is doing and what the records are. Just go and get yourself better every year. And in 10 years, you're going to be better than 99% of everyone. Slow and steady, right? It's slow and steady. I wasn't, I mean, maybe other than the bench being kind of a phenom with that, I wasn't world-class starting off the gun. I didn't care about beating all the national and international records right off the bat. All I wanted was the state records. You know, I just wanted to be the strongest guy at the Y. Then all of a sudden, I wanted to be the strongest guy in the state. Then I wanted to be the strongest guy in the nation. Then I wanted to be the strongest guy in the world. But it was a... That was a 15-year process. Builds upon each other, right? Yeah. Interesting. And I guess the segue to that that question um, is where do you see powerlifting going in the next 5, 10 years? Oh, that's a good question. I think, I think it has potential. I think it depends on if it catches the eyes of people that are very business-oriented. I think that, you know, Kieran Kidder tried to do a good job with the WPO. Yeah. And this was in the early 2000s up to 2007. And I think that that was going to push powerlifting to the next level. But Kieran Kidder wasn't individually wealthy enough to keep it moving. And I understand why he pulled away from it. It was starting to suck a lot of his money out. And he thought by that time that Enzer or Titan or Metrics or somebody would pick it up and help. But, you know, he was only a small multimillionaire. I think that people, somebody like Arnold or somebody like that is going to have to be take powerlifting under their wing and not be afraid to lose money for a while to make it bigger. But I don't think it's ever going to be a sport like the NBA or the NFL no. because it's not fun to watch. Yeah, it's more of an inst- it's you know. Do you know the king of the lifts, guys? Yeah, kind of. Um, Ryan Lapida, he's another Canadian guy. But anyway, he said Instagram is the perfect place for powerlifting because you don't have to sit through you know five hours of yeah. a meet. You can just you watch scroll through. Right. The only sports that are boring to watch that are successful are ones that everyone can do. Baseball. Golf, bowling, <laughs> base, baseball in some circumstances other than hitting 350 foot home runs. Yeah, those are fun. But, you know, any fucking jackass can learn how to throw a bowling ball. <laughs> yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'll flip on ESPN and I'll watch pro bowling and I am, I am blown away with how badass those guys are. But it's not a thousand pounds on your back. You're going to break your fucking spine. Yeah. So my point is, is that our sport is very extreme which is automatically going to turn away 65% of the population. And then the other 35% don't have the work ethic to put in the years and years of grinding and pushing. That's why, you know, I guess when I was younger and in my 20s and competing hard, you know, I I wanted to kick everybody's ass. And now I just respect anybody that trains hard. Because what you got to realize is that that person has to be wired different than a lot of other people. And to me, that's respectable, you know. Anybody that wants to push to a high level of anything, I'm all about it. There's sacrifice, you know I mean? right? Yeah. It's uh it's it's all sacrifice actually. Like it's patience and sacrifice and consistency in my opinion. That's like the winning the winning yep. um recipe, if you will. Yeah. Um Do you think uh like I don't know if it's like this around where you are, but uh around here, um do you know who Bryce Krawcheck is? 
The name sounds familiar, but I don't think I know him personally. He's a, he's a IPF or CPU lifter, um, Canadian Powerlifting Union. He's a drug-free deadlifter, and he's deadlifting like almost 400 kilos uh, at, 100, wow. at 105 kilo body weight. Um, Damn. Yeah, he's a, he's a big lifter. And he, uh, he's been dabbling with some equip lifting, uh, single ply. And, uh, it's, it's just blowing up here in Canada. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's growing and growing. Um, it's kind of making a comeback. Is it like that down where you are? Is the, is the equipment coming back at all? I don't think so. No, I think the problem is the technology, the single ply has gotten almost to the point where it's very similar to what we were using in the, in the multiply. Yeah. Um, you know, back then we didn't have the angles cut right. We didn't have the material we were just experimenting with. You know, I remember when the first Predator Inzer briefs came out, and they were like a whole other level. They changed five times from 2005 to 2011 when I finally decided I wasn't going to chase those big equipped numbers anymore. And my point is, is that I don't even know what that fucking fabric is now. It's that was pretty 15 years ago. You know, so my point is, is that you watch guys, and I'm not taking anything away from them, but you watch guys like Blaine Sumner doing 900 pound benches in single ply. That was that is not the sing- Yeah, that's not the single ply shit that we were no. we were training with. The ins- so, I think what you're finding is that technology is outweighing people's outweighing. It's not single ply anymore. I guess is what I'm saying. It's still a single ply garment, but the technology and the material has gotten so good. That it's really not much different, in my opinion, than multiply. Yeah, like I mean, the old Inzer blast shirts. Like I have a Titan Super Katana now. Yeah. Um, and it's a size fifty, which is really loose on me. I took the sleeves in quite a bit, but like on Thursday, I benched uh, four seventy five to a two board for a triple, and that's like my best ever raw bench. It's three fifteen for a single. My my bench is horrible, but uh, yeah, my best ever raw bench is three fifteen for a single, and I'm getting. You know that much carryover out of a shirt, a loose shirt. Oh, it's crazy! It's crazy, man. I mean, think about it in this perspective. I had the baddest prototype metal shirt you could buy back when I was fine. When I was kind of 2011, 10 was kind of my peak in gear. I was doing a 615 floor press, and my my bench was 844. So I was only getting 220 out of that shirt. I was still benching 600 raw. That's um, crazy, but. I started to notice a big change in about 2011 or 12. I started helping guys out. Um, and they were benching in the nines, and I watched them warm up, and they could barely bench press 405. Really? So they were getting they were getting 500 out of a shirt. That's when it started to get out of control. You got to remember when George Halbert bench pressed 766 at 220. I watched him do 635 touch and go raw. Holy fuck! Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is like. That, but that's to me is when the gear was cool because it added on to what you had already put work on too. Yeah. But now some of this shit's just completely out of control. And I, I don't know, like to me, the single ply is just not, doesn't mean what it should anymore. I think that if it had to stay the same standards, like the Kazmaier marathon squat suits and the one, 1. 1.5 meter marathon knee wraps and the Inzer blast shirts that, you know, uh, Ed Cohen and those guys had to wear to me, that's fucking single ply. Yeah. If it gives you like, maybe 50 or 60 pounds on your squat and like 20 to 50 on your bench. That to me is single ply. When you're able to figure out those shirts and then you can bench press three and 400 more than you possibly could beforehand. I don't know. To me, it turns back into smoke and mirrors and it actually pushes the general population back away from it. Hurts the sport a little bit, right? I think it does tremendously. And I think that was the biggest problem with Louie is that 
from his greed and wanting bigger numbers, he didn't realize what that equipment was going to do to the sport. And I think Raw saved it. Um, but now the numbers have gotten so crazy raw that it's pushed it back out again from the population. And, and I'm saying that's a population issue too because in general, we're weak. We're weak-minded people. We're weak-minded, you know, as far as wanting to compete against other people. Uh, we're taught to, you know, not have aggressive, you know, all these things in school. My point is we're just not, we're not tough like we used to be or had to be back in the 50s and 40s and 30s. The bubble wrap. And I think when you show that kind of extreme amount, it's like me telling you, yeah, you want to get your bench up to 600 pounds. We'll do it in 15 years. That's going to turn 99% of people away. I'm in, Matt. If you want to do it, I'm in. Yeah, but you get my point? (laughs) So you tell that to an average person. say, what? I got to wait 15 years? It's like most people don't even want to go to college because what do you mean? I got to go to class for four more years? Yeah. Dude, four years is jack shit. Yeah. But to normal people, it's a long time. And that's why I think we don't ever... Um, we don't ever progress as a population as far as we should because we look at everything as being long when actually it's really short. I and then, and we don't enjoy that. We don't enjoy the process of getting better. You know, like to me, I like working out. It relieves a lot of my stress. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I accomplish something every day. For most people, working out is a fucking chore. Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, I love. No, the- I mean, people that are like us don't, but. We're the, we're not the majority. Yeah, true. The uh, well, I think a lot of it is people want instant gratification. You know. Yep. Like, my mom is friends with uh, like she works in an old folks home, and all the yeah. nurses like I go in there once in a while and visit the old people and stuff like that. And the nurses are like, "Oh, Billy!" Like uh, they see me in the newspaper all the time. So like, "Oh, Billy," um, you know, how do I how do I lose a little bit of belly fat? And I'm like, "Well, you're gonna have to diet for about twelve weeks and." train for 12 weeks and then you'll start seeing some some improvement and they're like oh i have to wait that long well fuck i'm i'm happy with the pudge a little bit you know like yeah it's it's one of those things that nobody everybody can't handle delayed gratification and that is what's hurting what's helping powerlifting is instagram and social media and what's hurting powerlifting is instagram and social media like i said to your friend like i didn't know where i stood in the rankings until i saw the plusa once a year yeah which gave me another 12 months to work up the ranks versus right now if you want to go know what the records are just get on the fucking internet open powerlifting right and then you're like oh fuck i gotta bench 615 pounds to have the world record at 242 you're like fuck that i'm yeah. only benching 250 you know what i mean so my point is i think that helps back in my day it helped the longevity process because everything was delayed you know delayed information um you know those types of things actually help the sport but I like the way it's going. I like the way um, it's being portrayed now. Um, I, you know, I think we still have too many federations, which is becoming everybody. The problem is everybody's fighting over peanuts. You know, you got the USPA. They're not going to give up to the USAPL because that means they're going to have to give up hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Same thing falls along the line with the USAPL. Same thing falls along with all these multiply. You got these small guys that are probably making four to six thousand a meet. And profit, and they're not going to give up their right to run meets because they want everything unified. Yeah. Um, well, and, and the only thing that unified the NBA and the NFL was money. Yeah. Right. If you played, let's say when you know you had the American League and the National League and American football, 
if the American League was paying twice as much as the National League, where, where's everybody going to go play? Exactly. And that's the problem with with the meat directors now is that everybody wants to make money versus unify the sport. And uh, that's where you're at. Well, when people get caught on these teams too, I find like I find it so frustrating when like you go online and you see someone rip up like a 400 kilo deadlift for a double or something, right? And they're like, "Oh, well, if that was on a stiff bar, you wouldn't be able to do that." Or if you weren't on fucking steroids, it's like, man, we're all on the same team. We're all trying to we're all trying to get a big total. That's why we powerlift, right? And yeah. then these people start bickering at each other, and it's like they start fighting online and they're bitching at each other, and it's like. What are we all here for? We're all here for the same goal. Why are we fucking fighting? Well, you know, my grandma was pretty smart. The one I took on all the motorcycle rides the last, from 2012 to 14 until she got too old. We went across the country three, four times. And she said, you know what, Matt? She goes, if there's one piece of advice I can give you before I die, she's like, think about what you're concerned with and see if it's going to matter in 20 years. That's a great if quote. It's not gonna, if it's not going to matter in 20 years, don't give a fuck about it. Right, because at the end of the day, it just causes more stress and bullshit for no reason. Exactly. But if you look at ninety nine percent of whatever, let's just take lifting for example. You look at ninety nine percent of what people are fighting and bickering on over the internet on lifting right now. In twenty years, nobody gives a fuck. No. So it's just wasting a bunch of energy and a bunch of people that are negative. And I think that's the other thing is they don't realize is that if the average person was to go look up a powerlifting board. Or, like, we're going to look like a bunch of uneducated fucking dipshits. Seriously. That all we do is fight and bicker amongst each other. And pe- that's going to draw other people away from the sport. Yeah. Right? And it's like... I mean, you don't, you don't see the pro NBA players fighting over the game last night. They don't give a fuck because they just made a million dollars. Seriously. So, win or lose, they still went home in a Bentley. Exactly. Right? Which is good and bad. But my point is, is that we don't sit back and think enough about what we're fighting over and what it's really meaning to anything. That's why I'm always very concerned with who I associate with both in business and in the gym. You know, there's a lot of companies out right now that sponsor and, you know, um, promote lifters that are not good for the sport. Yeah. Just because they might talk shit or they might act like a dipshit to other people or whatever. And, at the end of the day, it's just turning average people away. Well, it might create some kind of buzz and attention, and me and you're like, ooh, what's the new dirt now? But in 15 seconds, nobody cares, and it just makes everybody look negative. Well, that's even why, like, Mark, he said, uh, you know, he was going to do um, a money meet, and he said he he, stopped, he didn't want to do it because what if he gave that money to someone who's, like, an ex-con or, you know, like, someone who's bad for the sport? Like, he's like, it doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah, and a lot of people were upset at him for that. Like, oh, you're you you know you're holding the sport back, and it's like, well, if you think about it, um, not really, because like, you look at the Kern for example. A couple years ago, they gave two hundred fifty thousand dollars out for prize money, right? Which is cool for the sport, and it's going to bring a lot of people to powerlifting, like that kind of money. But uh, if you give that person to like, if you give that money, sorry, to some person who's who's a horrible role model, say he's like a you know convicted murderer or some shit. Um, that's just going to be horrible for the sport, right? Yeah, and I think the, the, having a convicted murderer or something like that would probably be a little bit a little bit outlandish, but I think what the real problem you have to worry about is people that just are not good representatives of character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. People that aren't, you know, I don't, I don't really care what anybody does in their private life, but the fact of the matter is that if you find people that are, always constantly talking shit about other people and then fill the entire internet full of negative stuff. I mean, and people do this 
to other people they don't even know personally. And I think it's one of those things where we just look, we look childish, we look uneducated, and we look ignorant to the outside world. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, I, I, like I, yeah, I agree. I don't want to uh, give that too much attention because that uh, that kind of breeds on itself, right? Yeah. Um, to stay positive here, but uh, I have one last question for you, and uh, you kind of yeah. touched on it earlier. Um, how does like you've you've been coaching for a long time and coached a lot of athletes? How does coaching enhanced athletes differ from in coaching uh, non-enhanced athletes? Um, what I have found is that most enhanced athletes are further or closer to their genetic potential than non-enhanced. So usually the enhanced athlete is not only using drugs to get better, but you would be surprised at how many unnatural athletes have asked me more questions about how to sleep better, how to eat better, and how to train smarter. And the drug-free person is usually worried about comparing themselves to other people that are using. So they think the magic's in the drugs, when in reality, we all come back down to the core point that it becomes what you're doing outside of the gym is what really pushes you. So I think the difference is is that obviously the unnatural or using athlete can train at a little bit higher of an intensity and, more importantly, a little bit dumber and still see results. Hmm. Whereas the natural athlete actually has to train insanely smart because they are the ones that don't have the extra healing capacity. So optimization of training, volume, and intensity has to be much more dialed as a natural athlete because you don't have the recovery. But I have found in my entire career that natural athletes tend to train a lot fucking dumber than people <laughs> that take shit. And I can't understand why because you think they'd want to max that out to the potential. But look how many people to this day that are natural athletes still use linear periodization. Yeah. But you look at the people that are taking stuff, they're doing all this variability, they're moving and mixing and matching. My point is, is that eventually, now the ceiling level might change. Let's say this is you natural and this is you enhanced. The, the key to getting better from here, this point on is still the same things. Yeah. Yeah, this person's better, but he's only this much better. Everything else still matters. It's just as much as so if this person gets better sleep and better recovery and better training, he's going to match. Now, if that person does the same thing, they're going to hear. But you could equalize by being much, much smarter in your training. So I find that really even when I was enhanced, my training sessions weren't longer. My volume was actually more primed and prepared and um, was more dialed. Um, and a lot of it was because in my youth is when I was drug free and I didn't know as much about training. So the drugs really only enhanced what I already knew and what I could already do, but it didn't really change how hard I could train. All it did was it assisted my ability to put on more muscle and have a little bit more intensity in my workouts. But when I was at my peak, um, both natural and drug free, the workouts were the same length and intensity that I could withstand at that time. So I think that they are the same, but what you have to do is kind of follow the same parameter that like Stan Efforting follows, right? If, if Stan Efforting is going to look at, and he does this, um, especially a couple of years ago, when he's looking at Thor's training cycle, 
the first thing he's doing is not asking him what drugs he's taking. Yeah. He's looking for the biggest hole with the biggest problem. Yeah. So if he's only getting four hours of sleep, Stan's going to fix that. If he's only eating every five hours, Stan's going to fix that. The point is, is that a lot of times we get so condensed in our thought pattern that we're not looking for the large holes in our training. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for, are we getting enough sleep? Is that sleep quality? What kind of calories are we taking in every day? Is it enough or too little? What's our hydration level? What's our salt and electrolyte levels? All of those things are the same importance whether you're drug-free or you're not. It just depends on where you want to be. If this is the all-time world record and you're okay with being an American record holder, you might be able to get that way drug-free, but everything else is going to have to be into play. It's your standard. So what what I would strongly suggest to the drug-free athlete is make sure you're looking at every variable you possibly can to be as enhanced naturally as possible which the two things is going to be important for that is quality of sleep and sleep amount and the type of nutrition that your body can absorb. Okay. Interesting. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Well, uh, I, I, man, I really appreciate you taking the time out today and, uh, and talking to me and let me know when you're, when you're in July coming up here and we can, uh, we can link up. I'd love to get together with you and have hang out. Dude, that'd be cool. We'll probably hang out a couple days and go fishing and train a little bit. That'd be wicked, man. I would love to learn from you. And uh, if I can learn some some gu- uh, gusha, I'll uh, I'll pay you. Yeah, yeah. I'll teach you some guasha stuff. It ain't no problem. Guasha. Okay. Sick, man. I'm. Uh, thank you again. It really uh, really means a lot for you to come out here and, and talk. All right, brother. I'll talk to you later. We'll talk to you later, man. Bye. Peace. Well, holy fucking shit! That was Matt winning. Um, that. Uh, if you don't learn something from that, you're fucked. Um, thanks, Matt. That was uh, that was crazy talking to him. He's a guy I've looked up to for a really long time in powerlifting. Uh, a guy a lot of people look up to in powerlifting. And I uh, hope you learned a lot from that. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next week.